my recipe for the perfect investment is this. Invest in stabilized value-add commercial multifamily properties through a trustworthy operator and an expert asset manager contracting with a professional property management firm in a large and growing market. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, guys, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, the number one podcast geared towards educating investors and entrepreneurs who want to break into the U.S. market and start buying cash-flowing deals. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, as you know, it is my job to explore, dissect, and interview the cream of the crop when it comes to real estate investing here in the United States. And the reason that I do that is so I can educate you guys, so you guys can go out and make the right decisions when it comes to investing for cash flow to create long-term wealth and financial freedom. If you are new to this show, then welcome. I welcome you to this show and I encourage you to go back and start from the beginning and work your way through each and every episode and listen to the incredible content that my guests have given to this show. You can find this show on all the platforms, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you podcast, I will be. Remember to hit subscribe and each and every week you'll be notified when the latest cracking episode is launched. Before we dive into today's show and I introduce you to the cracking entrepreneur, remember that I do have a free ebook. And if you want to get your hands on this free ebook, it is pretty simple. Firstly, all you need to do is jump on iTunes and leave the show a review. It helps to show iTunes that we're creating an awesome community of entrepreneurs who want to learn more about investing here in the United States. Once you've left that comment, on iTunes, shoot me a screenshot of that comment to info, that's I-N-F-O at rsnpropertygroup.com. And in return, I will send you my brand spanking new ebook called The Art and Science of Raising Capital Like a Pro, The 4P Rule. And it is the book, a very simple ebook, which is set up to change your mindset about the benefits of raising capital to start going out and getting more deals done. And the four Ps are pretty simple. It is professionalism. It is pitch practice and patience. Those four Ps are the things that I've seen in myself and in other successful syndicators who go out and raise capital successfully. Remember, if you want to get your hands on this free ebook, jump on iTunes, leave the show a five-star review, then shoot me the screenshot at info at rsnpropertygroup.com. Also, remember, spots are filling up really quickly in my mentorship program here in 2017. And if you want to start learning about how to successfully close on your first multifamily deal, then this mentorship program is for you. I walk you through the A to Z of multifamily investing, from analyzing and choosing the right markets, to building your right team, to close, how to close on a deal and obtain the best financing. And to top it all off, I give you the tools to start raising capital successfully as a newbie so you can get more deals done. Done and you can grow your net worth. I help you establish your inner key person of influence and help you create a cracking personal brand. If you are interested in taking that next step and you want to get involved in my mentorship program, it's pretty easy. Again, shoot me a email at info, the I-N-F-O at rsnpropertygroup.com and put in the subject line mentorship 
program. Okay, lastly, if you do have any comments or feedback for this show, I love hearing from my loyal listeners. And the easiest way you can do that is jump on my website at rsmpropertygroup.com forward slash podcast. And remember to leave some comments in the show section of any of the shows that you do like. I love hearing from you guys. It helps me create an even better show and it helps me motivate to you know create, giving you the best content that I possibly can so you guys can go out there and start successfully investing here in the United States. All right, guys, let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Paul Moore. Paul is an entrepreneur, investor, and an author with a wide range of experience in real estate and business. His first business venture was a staffing company, which he later sold for over $2.9 million. During this time, Paul was a finalist for Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year two years in a row. Paul later entered the real estate sector where he flipped over 50 homes, 25 high-end waterfront lots, developed a Hyatt house a hotel, a subdivision, and a very successful multifamily project. Paul is also the author of The Perfect Investment, Creating Enduring Wealth for, from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing. So without further ado, let's get him out here. G'day, Paul. Welcome to the show. Hey, great great to talk to you, Reed. Thanks for having me on. Mate, my pleasure. Um, but before we dive into the nuts and bolts of today's show, I'm pretty interested to learn more about your background and you know, this staffing company, it sounds like a pretty awesome adventure that you sold for $2.9 million. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more for the listeners? Yeah, so I had an engineering degree and then an MBA and I uh, went to Ford Motor Company. I, I really liked the idea of being an entrepreneur, but I'd never met one before. Well, a couple months into Ford Motor Company, as much as we liked it, we were in uh, Detroit, Michigan. My, my later business partner and I were both pretty bored. And we realized that we wanted to do more. So we talked about starting an oil change shop and a tax consulting firm and all these other things. But about uh, four years later, we landed on what was called a PEO, which is a professional employer organization. And it's, it gives companies a chance to outsource uh, a lot of tasks like um, hiring, firing, regulations, payroll, taxes, benefits, workers' comp. It allows uh, companies to um, get uh, tap into very large pools for better benefits and just basically to have an off-site HR, you know, human resource staffing um, um, office in their company, even if they only have five or ten employees. And so we did that. And we thought we were brilliant because five years into this, Wall Street really took a liking to uh, the PEO business. And so a friend of ours, uh, their company went public and they decided they wanted a Michigan office. And um, after negotiating with them for a while, we sold the company to them right at the very top of the market. So that was a, a great success. And um, it was, uh, you know, I, I kind of viewed myself as semi-retired at 35, which <laughs> Did not go well. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I want to just elaborate uh, or you know, knuckle down on the fact that you're an engineer. You're, you know, I think you must be like the seventh or eighth engineer on this show. There's so many different. I'm, I'm a formal engineer. Uh, I've had a lot of guests on this show. What type of engineer were you working for Ford? Well, believe it or not, I actually went to Ford on my MBA credentials more than the engineering because right. I have a degree in petroleum engineering, which mm -hmm. is drilling, <laughs> drilling and producing oil and gas wells, which will 
kind of come into my story a little later. Nice, <laughs> nice. So what's the difference between petroleum engineering and a chemical engineer? A chemical engineer, from my understanding, deals with what you would do with the petroleum after it's out of the ground, after it's refined and turned into products and taken to market. Uh, petroleum engineering has three different functions. It's finding the oil and gas underground, working with geologists, second, drilling that, and then third, producing uh, the oil and maximizing production over a long period of time. Interesting, interesting. It's a very similar background to myself. I spent a couple of years working for a mining company um, back in 2009, geologists for exploratory stuff, you know, in, in remote mines, mainly for copper, aluminium, and um, uranium, actually. So I had a similar, similar experience, but not, not on the oil and gas side, on more the uh, hard minerals and commodities. So very, wow. very interesting where, stuff. Where was that, Reed? Uh, that was a few different places. Uh, so in Thailand, um, in the mountains of Thailand, there was a lot of gold and copper. And, and typically where you find, uh, and for all the listeners out there, probably this has got nothing to do with real estate, but it's still interesting. Where you find a mineral deposit like copper, you're typically going to find a couple of others like gold. Uh, sometimes you might find some uranium. Uh, there's also uh, a project in Fiji and obviously in the in the remote parts of, of Australia. There's uh, Australia's a huge mining um, company, uh, company, a huge mining country, I should say, and uh, very heavily reliant upon uh, the mining sector. Uh, but you know, for for another conversation, we can definitely dive into that. But Paul, I wanted to talk about you know the whole the whole reason I got you on the on the show today was to talk about the successes and the failures of of your background. You you're, you know we we've met uh, a few months ago and you're part of an awesome mastermind group that we've all started. Uh, and I was really interested and in, in eager to get you on the show because you've had that sort of ups and downs. And and, and I want to knuckle down a little bit more into why that first venture that you you know you went out on with your business partner at leaving Ford why that PEO was so successful. Do you, do you, can, you, can you you know point to one particular thing or was it just more the timing of the market and, and people started to want to you know, outsource that HR component of, of small businesses? Well, the timing, you know, to, to sell the company for like 24 times our annual profit, that was certainly a function of the crazy market at the time and the, uh, you know, Wall Street. But the success of the company, uh, as you know, on its own, was um, due to an obsession with customer service. My uh, my partner has written two books about customer service. One is called Client. Um, one is called Customer Success. And uh, so we were obsessed with serving our customers. I mean, if there was a mistake on a payroll check, even if the customer might have caused it, we went to great lengths to either, you know, wire money into their account to fix it by the end of the day or overnight them a check or whatever. We just did what we called it doing backflips for our customers. And um, I think that's why we were so successful as a company. Interesting. Interesting. And so um, what were your sort of takeaway, you know, you know, advice or looking back on that company right now, what could you give advice to someone starting a, a small PEO today or just any venture that is um, to try and, you know, I don't know if you were a disruptor or to try and change the mindset of people and focus more on, on, on customer relationships? Well, I mean, I think that's basically it. I think it's really anticipating customer problems before they know they have them. In other words, looking at what could go wrong with this customer, what could they be calling us about an hour or two from now, anticipating that and doing something in advance to serve them so that they go, oh, I didn't even know I needed this. I 
didn't know what I didn't know, but you did. Wow. You know, so giving them that wow experience and, yeah, and I and I try. I think I've you know my partner and I've tried to do that in every business we've been involved in. So interesting. And uh, still partners today, or you've moved uh, gone down separate paths? We're on different paths right now, uh, but we have been partners on fi- five or six different businesses over the last twenty five years. We actually went to Ohio State together to get our MBA. Nice. So five or six different businesses. Sounds like you're an extremely a serial entrepreneur, if I do say so myself. So what other businesses have you been involved in? Oh my goodness, we don't have enough time. But uh, yeah, um, I, I've had several successes and and several big failures as well. But I've been involved in um, investing in oil and gas. Uh, I have a um, I have a website that actually generates leads for residential real estate, uh, and I have that. It's called SmithMountainHomes.com. We generate a lot of leads at Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia. I've been doing that for about 13 years. We have a wireless internet company that's never really taken off in North Dakota. Uh, we had a multifamily project in North Dakota, quite a large project that we built from the ground up when, and we operated. I oversaw that uh, with my partner for a number of years. Uh, like you said, we built a Hyatt House hotel. Uh, have also done a uh, tax segregation consulting uh, which really has is cost segregation uh, has really helped us in our current business as multifamily operators. And I've had a few other small things along the way, like you mentioned, flipping houses, flipping lots, doing a subdivision, et cetera. That's incredible stuff, and and I guess that sort of segues from the uh, the you know the transition to, from your staffing company into real estate. So, what was that aha moment when you first realized you wanted to get involved in real estate? You said you retired at thirty five years old, and you said you were a bad retiree. So, what made you go down that path of real estate investing? Well, we started a nonprofit organization. We built, we bought 120 acres in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, way out in the sticks, out in moonshine country. And uh, seriously, and uh, we uh, we we got we recruited several families to live along the the fringe, the the but along the borders of this property. And we actually had uh, international students who were studying at various universities and colleges around the East Coast come visit, and they spent a weekend there. So. There's a real crisis, read with international students because they come to the U.S. for an average of five and a half years, and they really want to get to know culture. They want to get to know American families, and often they leave after five and a half years. About 80 to 90 percent of the time, they leave without ever setting foot in an American's home, and we thought that was a tragedy. So we actually started working with these different international student groups on campuses. And uh, we invited them out to the farm for a weekend retreat. Had a great time. Did that for a couple of years. Unfortunately, the other families weren't as excited about it as, as, I, as, as I was. And I was a high energy, energy entrepreneur, you know, and I, and I got bored really quick. So I was about 37. And my friend moved to town, and he we didn't know what the word flipping meant, but we said, why don't we go down the courthouse steps and see if we can buy some of these houses for sale? So we started buying houses for cash, fixing them up, flipping them. The first one we sold within a few hours of putting a FISBO sign in the yard for sale by owner sign, and we thought we were on our way. We thought, well, we can do this every week, you know. Well, it wasn't that easy, as you can imagine, but I did really enjoy real estate. Around that time, I invested in a commercial office project with uh, the same friend I mentioned before out in Colorado Springs, and uh, I was off and running, and I've loved real estate ever since. 
Nice. And I know that you've been heavily involved in the sort of the high-end waterfront homes of uh, up in uh, where you're from in, in Virginia, right? Is it the Blue Ridge area that you, you come from? Yes, that's right. And that's that's where we moved to, yeah, about 19 years ago. Nice. So tell me a little bit more about how you got involved in developing, you know, waterfront lots. Well, you know, this lake was developed in 1966, and people were buying lots at the time. Actually, it was literally just for power generation, and people thought maybe someday people will use this for recreation. But people were buying lots for uh, two to three thousand dollars at the time for these very nice high-end waterfront lots, and uh, you know, Smith Mountain Lake. It's it's one of the, it's it's kind of like the Tahoe Lake Tahoe of the East, but. Anyway, um, people through the 70s, through the 80s, were buying lots for you know a few thousand to maybe up to $50,000. Well, these lots now were going up. Now it was uh, around the year 2002, three, four. These lots were raising, rising in value about 50 to 100,000 a year in many cases. So these lots that somebody purchased maybe for $50,000 were now worth three, four, six, eight hundred thousand dollars or even more. And um, a lot of them were overgrown. People had maybe inherited a lot, and it was so overgrown you couldn't even see the water. So we saw an opportunity to give the lot owner a fair price for what it was. So let's say the lot uh, they had purchased for $50,000. Maybe we would offer them $300,000 for this. And then we would go in and we would clear the lot, thin the trees out, get a dock permit, uh, maybe put a park bench on it, do some fantastic advertising through a website we developed, and we would sell the lot for perhaps a $100,000 profit. And uh, we did this uh, over and over, and it was a lot of fun. But we, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, I don't know if you know the song, The Boxer, but uh, they say, you know, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. And my uh, partner in that venture, his brother had sold his company for 31 or $32 million to eBay. And he said, guys, this real estate bubble is about to burst. And we were like kids with fingers in our ears. No, 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 no. We didn't want to hear it, you know. <laughs> but uh, it did burst. And um, I found myself, instead of having a million and a half dollars in the bank that I had when I came to Virginia, uh, I found myself two and a half million dollars in debt. Wow. And that was fun at all. Wow. Wow. So, I, I, so many questions that come, want to come out of that. So let's segue into, you know, you, we've talked a little bit about your successes, but now about the failures of, of real estate and, and, and how you've recovered from that to, you know, you, back in 2008, I'm assuming that's when everything went uh, awry yeah. from you guys. And now we're in 2017. Talk to me about this sort of this transition and how those first couple of years after you got hit, how did you, you know, keep your head afloat, you know, to make sure that you continued down the path towards success, you know, in, a, in real estate investing? Well, one of the things I love about real estate, Reed, is that it wasn't like my friend who had the dot com back in 2000. It was worth $76 million and $72 million, I believe, of that 76 evaporated in the dot com bust and he was left with $4 million. It's not like that with real estate. I mean, of course that can happen. I, I interviewed Rod Cleef on my show, and you know he talked about how his uh, his his uh, assets went up by thirty two million dollars in Florida in one year, then they plummeted fifty million the next year. And uh, but so that can happen, obviously. But you know, I still had a lot, even though I had two and a half million dollars in debt. I still had all these assets. 
And it, we don't have time on this show to go into it, but I can tell you this, my family, I gathered my family and I said, guys, we're in big trouble. We, there's no way out of this that I can see except to sell all this. And so we actually decided to go on a really radical generosity path. We basically said, we're going to start giving uh, money away uh, to charities, to nonprofits, to our church, things we were passionate about. Uh, at a rate as if we were making half a million dollars a year, which we certainly weren't. And uh, we started that in January 2008. Four weeks later, I ran into a, a developer at a Subway restaurant. He gave me some thoughts, had a light bulb moment, and 13 months later, I was completely debt-free. So, wow. pretty amazing ride. Wow. So, how did you <clears throat> how did you do that? Just through, like elaborate a little bit more on that like you so you gave away some of the properties that you had uh you, your bad debt on no uh we we just started giving cash i mean we started making donations on a weekly basis to some of these organizations that we were really passionate about and so reed i, I mean i there, there was a lot of steps there were legal hurdles there were bank hurdles there were there was a lot of sweat a lot of pain in that next 13 months but i'm convinced that the the generosity the radical giving posture we had is what led us to a place where we ended up being debt free even though i had to do all those hard, all that hard work as well right right so interesting yeah. interesting now we've talked a little bit offline uh many many times um about your your diving into the experience of developing a hotel so do you want to explain to the listeners how that came about and where does that fall on the timeline after you know you 2008 has hit you've you've gone into a bunch of debt you've you've got your head back above water 13 months later when did you start getting into the ground up construction business so in 2010, things were still really slow at Smith Mountain Lake, and um, I decided uh, to gather uh, some friends, and I had this petroleum engineering background. I said, guys, there's an oil boom in North Dakota. Let's go invest there. So we found a guy who was uh, – and this really plays into to my current investing strategy and philosophy, which is opposite of what I did in 2010. But basically, we said, you know, we could go for the uh, for the single or the double and invest in this Bakken oil boom. Let's go for a grand slam. Let's invest with this guy who's got this amazing technology to find oil that nobody else can find in a different formation. It happens to be in North Dakota as well. Well, we did that. We invested quite a lot of money in that. And um, that's never paid out to this day because it was a, what they call a wildcat venture. In other words, they were looking for oil in a kind of a higher risk thing. And But what happened during that time is my partner who has a small jet, uh, the same guy from Colorado Springs, he, he could never find a place to stay when he went there. He couldn't find a hotel, couldn't find any place. And he saw that there were oil workers sleeping in their trucks and in these little flimsy RVs all over the place in North Dakota. There were 18,000 job openings. There was this incredible boom. These guys were making up to $100,000, $120,000 a year out of high school. And um, so anyway, he said, well, look, we've done real estate, both of us. Why don't we do this? So we very, very quickly, uh, unbelievably quickly built a multifamily facility there. And uh, it was about 130 doors. And uh, we brought that online in a very short time. There was no zoning, literally no zoning in this county at all. It's kind of like Houston, Texas. You know, they're, they're kind of an unzoned area, but this was really unzoned. I mean, it was like the Wild West. And so we were able to, to 
build modularly and do it very, very quickly. We had this place full. Reed, we were, you know, a typical rent for multifamily in the heartland of America runs, you know, 80 cents to $1.20 per square foot per month. You know, in other words, an 800 square foot apartment might rent for, let's say, $800, for example. Reed, we were renting these at $13 a square foot per oh, month. Oh, wow. <laughs> Was that because of the high turnover of hotels and the transient nature of what oil and gas is? Well, it was it was mainly because these oil companies and the and the service companies like Halliburton and Schlumberger and all that they couldn't find housing for these thousands of employees they needed, and if they could only find housing, you know, they would pay whatever they needed to. So we built these same customer success mindset we had in our PEO earlier. We built these really nice. I mean, we built you know we put in some granite countertops and beautiful cabinets, but they were only 300 square feet. These guys were just going in there to sleep and, and do some gaming on the weekend. But um, so we built these 300 square foot efficiencies and we rented them for $3,900 a month and they were wow. pretty full for years. Wow, wow, wow. And so you, you had this successful you know, hotel that was going well. What happened? Because I know you, you said that, and obviously <laughs> I know what happened, but maybe you can elaborate for the listeners out there who don't know what happened up in Dakota. Well, so we actually got the sense that it was being overbuilt around us and we thought what would happen if oil prices really plunged and of course nobody thought they would but you know they could have and they did of course so we actually decided to put this on the market in the year 2013 i think it was and uh, we sold this uh we sold the the land we had plus the multifamily facility for uh, a very large profit in uh, 2013, but we had already been working on a Hyatt hotel, uh, and that was over in Minot, North Dakota. Now, we thought we were pretty smart being real diversified because Minot's not in the center of the oil boom. It's got a fairly diverse economy. It's got an Air Force base. It's got all these other factors. Well, um, it wasn't the smartest thing to do, and there was all kinds of problems. We ended up building uh, through the coldest uh, winter in North Dakota memory, and we had all kinds of issues, including a contractor, um, our general contractor, who went bankrupt in the middle of the project and took a lot of money that we had, and we still went ahead and paid the subcontractors, even though by law we didn't need to, uh, because you know we had already paid him to pay them. But um, anyway, um, oil prices plummeted about a year or two after, uh, about a year I guess after the hotel opened. And the hotel has never recovered from that. So um, that is what that whole experience from the beginning of the multifamily facility through the end of the Hyatt experience, uh, that whole thing is what pushed me. Actually, I mean, long before the Hyatt even had problems, I, were, I really got passionate about doing multifamily. And then when I really saw the demographics behind it and all the, the future of it, I, I just plunged headlong into multifamily, actually about the time the hotel opened um, a number of years uh, ago. Interesting. So you, you sold the multifamily for a large profit. Did it then go, that profit go into building the Hyatt house? Is that what happened? Actually, my part did not, but my partners did. Yes, and right. so he 
he um, he's really experienced a lot of pain in this. So <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. So you know, the idea was that you you know for all those people out there listening, you probably t- your partner probably ten thirty one exchanged it, and, and which makes a you know uh, sense if you don't want to pay tax on it. So I, I'm assuming that's what he did in that scenario. Um, yeah, I think that's what he did. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but um, it makes sense that he would have done that. Right. And um, so, but unfortunately, yeah. the lesson learned there is that external factors contributed to the downfall of a hotel, which you know, in 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 hindsight, you know, maybe everything that goes up and up and up must come down, right? So, uh, lessons learned. What 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 was the biggest takeaway lesson from that Hyatt House construction and period of time? There were so many lessons, Reed, but the one I want to share today is the importance of market selection. It is absolutely critical uh, to find a large and growing market to invest in, one that has all kinds of uh, economic and employment factors that are diverse, that are not hinging on the stroke of a government pen, or that are not hinging on oil prices. So I have a 24-point screen I use now to select a market, and we are just absolutely bent on making sure that anything we invest in in the multifamily arena is in a market that has all, you know, most of these factors checking positive. Yep, and, and I'm sh- this is going to sort of segue into your book, and I'm sure that's what we're going to talk about and talk, talk about enduring wealth. But for all those listeners out there, do you want to elaborate a little bit more on what you do like to look for when you are choosing your market, given what you've gone through over the last you know ten to twelve years? Uh, yeah, I would love to. Um, I uh, we are looking generally the 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 number one thing i think we're looking for is we are looking for a growing population and you can have the best project in the world in a city where people are leaving and it's just not a smart way to do business uh so we're looking for net population migration places like uh austin and dallas and houston and san antonio charlotte uh, cities like Chattanooga and Nashville, uh, where people are moving to. We're also looking for low unemployment. We're looking at, for the components of population growth to be uh, diverse. We're looking for uh, we're looking at the renters as a percentage of total population. Amazingly, uh, you know, uh, home ownership has plunged from 69.2 percent down to about 63 percent over the last decade, and there's a lot of reasons for that, including demographics and government tampering. But um, some cities still have uh, home ownership in the 70 plus percent range, like Detroit. Other cities like Dallas have um, home ownership in the 50 something percent range. And so uh, we like Dallas for that reason. Um, We're looking at rents compared to home prices, the affordability index, uh, the rent prices as a percentage of the income in that area. Of course, that's specific to a project. We're looking for absorption rates, class B inventory, all kinds of things. Interesting. No, it sounds like you have your it down to a science in terms of what you do when you choose your market selection. Talk to me just briefly about your affordability index and, and for all those people out there who may not know what that is and how how it's a measurement of how people obviously can, the name of what it is, how people can afford to live in that area. Yeah, so the affordability index is uh, published by the um, Office of Federal Housing 
Enterprise Oversight <laughs> and the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And it indicates the percentage of people who can afford to buy a home. Now, nationally, the index is at 72.1% last I checked. But um, in different cities, you want to see a place, you know, where you actually want to see that as a lower number. So, for example, in Austin, uh, surprisingly right now, the um, affordability index, again, last I checked, was 62.9%. Uh, in Greensboro, High Point, North Carolina, it was 82%. Well, in that one way, I like Austin better because people are more ten tending more to rent than own. Right. Right, right. Interesting. No, it's, it, it, it all makes sense. And it's very, very, it's a good metric for people out there who may be looking into different markets and, and need to understand the components. Obviously, Austin, Texas is very hot and trying to get a good market that may, uh, so trying to get a good deal that may cash flow can maybe be a little bit dif difficult, but we, we won't, we won't get into it. What's the, uh, what's the sweet spot do you like to see your, your, your affordability index at when you, when you look at a market? Well, I mean, just, you know, we want it to be on the low side of 72.1%. So if that's the median uh, in the U.S., I mean, you know, if it's if we're in the 60s, uh, that would be, you know, a good place to be. Nice, nice. So I want to talk a little bit about your book, you know, uh, The Enduring Wealth and, and the mind shift towards multifamily um, investing. So when did you first write this book? And was this out of, you know, necessity to get your thoughts on the paper to educate others about the, you know, some of the failures that you've been through over your, your course of being a real estate entrepreneur? <laughs> well, <clears throat> actually, uh, yeah, we, we, uh, I, I've done a lot of work in marketing. I spent a couple of years uh, studying great copywriters and marketing geniuses and um, really started decided that we really wanted to do uh, free special reports or special reports, you know, to offer through our website, through bigger pockets, et cetera. And as I started putting thoughts together, I realized, wow, I've got a lot here, you know, and the, the more I wrote, the more I realized, you know, this, this could be a booklet and then thought, well, no, it could actually be a book. So it turned into a um, full length book. It's about 184 pages. And it's, uh, yeah, that came out about uh, six months ago. Nice. Well, congratulations on, on the launch of the book. Uh, I know I'm going through the, the process right now. It's it's tough. It's tough when you're writing a book, right? Like uh, uh, trying to collate all the all the data and the content plus trying to run a business can be can be tough. So so talk to me yeah. about your, you know, you, you talk a little bit about in your book, the recipe for creating enduring wealth. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more about that uh, for the listeners? Yeah, well, when I, um, you know, I don't know if, how many of your listeners will remember the um, the show called The Waltons, but uh, it was a wholesome family show that actually took place very close to uh, in in real life and uh, about a hundred years ago it took place close to where I live. But uh, they had something called the recipe. Now the recipe was a moonshine recipe, and uh, these these two old spinsters were offering this recipe to anybody who would buy it from them. But uh, my recipe is a little different. Uh, you don't need moonshine, in my opinion, uh, or any kind of alcohol, unless you are investing in small single-family rentals, which are a complete headache and uh, are very, very difficult if you're managing those yourself. I do believe in single family housing, but I, I really like to see it outsourced as far as managing the rentals for all kinds of reasons. But my recipe for the perfect investment is this, invest in stabilized value add 
commercial multifamily properties through a trustworthy operator and an expert asset manager contracting with a professional property management firm in a large and growing market. Awesome. No, I love it because that that's it's so true. You're, you're, and we can dive more into why that is, but valuing something where you can add value to it, you know, and increase that NOI is so important. And I talk a lot about on this show about how changing people's mindsets to having the ability to control your investment. You know, a lot of people that I experience, you know, talk to, and I'm sure yourself, Paul, go and put their money in the stock stock market and, you know, someone else manages their money for them. But putting it into um, hard assets where you can control the rental uh, increases and you control the operating expenses, you directly control the value of your assets. So I think it's very, very powerful uh, commercial uh, real estate in general because there's some other cash, great cash flowing assets out there besides multifamily. Um, so why do you like commercial real estate? You know, I've just explained why I like it, but why do you like it? So like you said, you can control the value on your, on your own. Um, you're also not beholden to uh, like residential, you're beholden to the lowest price properties that sell in the neighborhood. You're you're beholden to those who, you know, are are, are wholesaled out or or go for you know maybe half price on the on the courthouse steps and those sold to investors. But with commercial real estate, you're you know it's it's a direct function, as you know, of the net operating income and the cap rate. And so the value is largely under our control as long as we can raise income. And of course, we're looking for opportunities to buy properties that are either a management play, which means they're undermanaged or mismanaged, or a value add, which means basically they have they need upgrades and there's other things we can do to it to raise the value and therefore raise the rents and therefore raise the income and the value. And one thing I like about this is, you know, in Florida, when we talked about Rod Cleef earlier. When his, the value of his residential uh, portfolio plummeted to under, I think it was under half of what it had been, he had no control over that. But he actually said his multifamily portfolio did well during that time. And uh, we have some control over the net operating income. Uh, and we are looking for properties that, you know, a lot of people right now think the cap rates are about as um, compressed as they're going to get. Well, if they go, if they expand, meaning the values are going down with a commercial property, we can control our risk because if we can increase value more than the, uh, the cap rate expands, then we're actually ahead of the, uh, ahead of the curve. Right. Right. No, it makes sense. And, and then, but then it would boil down to how you, where you pick up that, that multifamily. Cause I'm seeing a lot of multifamily out there valued at a compressed cap rate where the actual market may not be where they, you know, the seller wants to sell at. So um, we're in a really weird situation right now. Well, not weird. It's just, it's more things, things are softening. And um, I think multifamily right now is a very hot space, but it's probably due for some sort of not correction, but definitely some sort of easing uh, in terms of, you know, property prices. Uh, but, but very, but very, very interesting stuff. I want to know what is, what is, you know, what is your outlook for for 2017 on multifamily, and, and what does the future hold for for Paul Moore, both personally and professionally? Well, great question. I think 2017 is going to largely continue as 2016. It seems, of course, all real estate is local. Every market is, uh, you know, local to itself, and there's a lot of markets that are already way overheated, and like Denver. 
and like some of the coastal cities where, you know, it wouldn't even make sense for most of us to, to uh, invest. But I think a lot of those um, are going to continue as they are for now. And I think that uh, 2017 will be continue to look a lot like 2016, which is kind of a, um, a flattening of the intense growth we saw from 2010 to 2015. And um, as far as me, uh, I really want to impact the world. Uh, I talked about generous giving earlier. I, I have a real passion to uh, stop human trafficking. And I need a lot of money, uh, not only to make a lot of money, but I need contacts. I need to to meet up with people who uh, have a lot of money at their disposal. I, I don't know if you've ever heard, but if you take the record year profits, the record year from Nike, Starbucks, General Motor, and Apple, add that together, double that, that's the approximate annual revenue from human trafficking. And... Um, it's yeah, it's it's 150 billion dollars, and that's as of several years ago, and so it's a really serious thing. It's a serious problem, and I have a real passion. Uh, I actually met with two human trafficking firms in Kansas City a few weeks ago when I went there. I have a real strong desire to thwart human trafficking, and to rescue its victims and help give them a life. And what they've been through is unbelievably painful, but they can they can be redeemed. They can have a life again. And so I would really like to be part of raising a billion dollars over the rest of my life to uh, thwart human trafficking and rescue victims. And so to do that, I've chosen commercial multifamily as my vehicle of choice to get to know investors, to meet people with a similar heart, to invest in the deals that I'm working on. Uh, I plan to, uh, like you, Reed, uh, close on several uh, multifamily assets per year. We're working on one right now. And uh, I plan to continue to do that and continue to grow our portfolio. And the people that are investing with me now, uh, a lot of them have the same desire as I do. Well, that's awesome. And I think that really goes back to what we are all doing in multifamily real estate investing or just in real estate in general. It's to create a bigger purpose in life. And that's in absolutely incredible that you're, you know, you've chosen the passion of, of human trafficking. It's a hugely, hugely, it's a massive problem that the world needs to deal with. And I think you're, you're right in terms of, you know, just giving that scale of how much money is made or created each, it was that each and every year you said, you know, you double the, the profits of all those major companies that's per year. That's what the, the, the human trafficking is worth. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Wow, that's it's just mind blowing, and to have that passion for you is really, really important. And for I think for everyone else out there listening, it's a great takeaway piece of advice. And what I'm taking away from this show right now in this interview with Paul is have something greater out there than than, than just you know getting a bunch of multifamily and a bunch of cash flow. That's all well and good to create financial freedom, but you need somewhere to you need a greater good. So um, that's that's pretty incredible stuff. Paul, at the end of every show, I do love to ask my investors or my guests to give me their top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? All right, let's do it. Mate, what's the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? So I am a super high energy guy and I'm going pretty much morning to night. So I intentionally take some time to just sit silently uh, basically a quiet time of meditation and prayer I do every morning. Nice. What sort of meditation uh, do you do or what form of meditation is just sitting quietly or is there something specific for the listeners out there? 
Well, sitting quiet is the hardest part for me because it seems like a major waste of time to me, yet uh, I really do believe it contributes to a lot of the ideas I get. Um, As far as meditating, basically I have a list of uh, things that I want to be in my life, and I I basically speak those out loud and and include some goals for my investing. I speak those out loud, and I uh, just kind of set my mind and and kind of visualize doing that. Like, so – for example, I, I've been married um, 30 years in June, but it hasn't always been easy. In fact, it's been uh, rocky a lot of times. So I just basically set my heart that I'm going to focus on my wife and focus on my kids when they're talking. And I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to hear their hearts, and I'm not just going to bulldoze them as I would by nature do if I didn't, you know, really set my heart in this direction. That's just an example. That's awesome, mate. That's. Uh... Really, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very, very similar in myself that it is go, 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 go. And sometimes, you know, some personal relationships can, you know, when, when you're an entrepreneur trying to, you know, strive to the, for the next best thing and, you know, get your next deal closed, you gotta, you gotta take time for your loved ones, and it's, it's, it's very, very important. So, um, so awesome stuff, mate. Who is the most influential person in your career to date? Well, first of all, my dad, Paul Moore Sr., he was uh, an amazing guy who um, everybody in town that knew him really, really loved him. Even the people that should have been his enemies in these union negotiations uh, actually really, really liked, loved, and respected him. Even though they had fierce negotiations with each other, they knew he always kept his word even when it hurt. So I'd say my dad. Nice, nice. Same same with me. (laughs) Uh, That's awesome. The most influential tool in your business given the fact that you've you know started so many different businesses over your career that have to be one specific tool it might be a software might be hardware that you use to date that is just you know it makes your business operate so much more smoothly and efficiently well i I mean i'll say the the most um the the most profitable tool i've ever had in two different businesses was writing a book about it (laughs) writing a book so Yeah, so I would say writing a book, as far as a tool I use day-to-day, it's HubSpot. HubSpot, what's that about? HubSpot is a database, and it basically allows me to keep um, uh, online records of all my um, uh, potential clients, potential uh, properties we're looking at, potential investors, um, and um, it just does a great job of tracking. It tracks when they open emails. It tracks all kinds of information. It's basically a contact management system. Right, CRM sort of thing, right? Yep. Cool, cool. So we've talked a lot about successes and failures, but what has been the biggest failure to date in your career? And what have you, what's the takeaway piece of advice you can give to all the listeners out there? I think it was, you know, what I said earlier was when I went from a million and a half in the bank to two and a half million dollars in debt. And I think the the lesson was don't just listen to the, you know, the TV gurus and everybody's saying, you know, just keep investing, keep investing. Really be really, really thoughtful and careful about looking at a specific market, a specific asset and the market uh, signs as a whole and how those go along with it. I think there's a huge difference between investing and speculating. I spent years, Reed, thinking that I was investing when I was actually speculating. The difference is this. Investing is when you have a very safe, secure uh, uh, principle that you're investing and that you have a chance to make a profit. Speculating is when the principle is not safe and secure and you have a chance to make a profit. Honestly, 
I think it's a lot more like gambling. And I did that for years and I am just absolutely hate that now. And I, I absolutely hate it for me. I hate it for my family. I hate it for my investors. So I actually am very, very risk averse now when I invest in multifamily. Nice, nice. And I think that's just given the hard knocks that you've been through is just only a natural thing to to go into to making sure you are more focused on, on what is what does risk mean and what does investing mean and what does speculating mean. So, so awesome stuff. Uh, last question, Paul, is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? Well, they can come to our website, which is wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S capital.com. Or they can uh, go to our book on Amazon. It's called The Perfect Investment, Create Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing. And they can also hear me and eventually you read on our podcast. Our podcast is a, it's a wealth building podcast where we talk to entrepreneurs and investors about their mistakes and failures. It's called how to lose money <laughs> how to lose money love the name of that and all those uh those links will be in the show notes today well paul you've certainly provided us with some absolutely cracking pieces of advice and some of the takeaway things that i've written down today um sort of the three major things that i took away from this conversation with you is you know the first one in the successful when you were successful uh when you you know you're successful now but when you were successful in the early days was valuing customer relationships and trying to get in front of the problem before it actually eventuated i think that's really really key to any entrepreneur out there whether it be you know real estate related or not just getting in front of the uh the, the moving train so it's not an issue down the road i think that was the first piece of takeaway advice um the second one was, you know, properly analyzing a market to make sure you are investing in a, in the correct market. Because as you have, you know, found out, which has been pretty hard knocks, that you invested in an area that was re probably really reliant upon one employer. Uh, I talk a lot about on this show that you know you want to have a diversification of employer um, employers in in, a, in any one market before you start investing. And and the last one I, I wanted to sort of touch on is controlling your asset for for that long term wealth preservation is really really important. Um, uh, and and I think one right at the end for me, a, a fourth one that I want to chuck in there is making sure you have a bigger purpose when it comes to investing, uh, you know, in, in life and in, in your career. So did, did I leave anything out? No, I think that's great. Thanks, Reed. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for dropping in. Enjoy the rest of your week, mate, and we'll catch up soon. All right, great. Thank you. Well, there you have it, another cracking episode, jam-packed full of awesome, incredible investing advice and tips. If you do want to uh, reach out to Paul, please jump on my website at rsnpropertygroup.com. All the links will be up there. We're going to do this all again next week, so take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing. investor.